We use the word hope a lot in our vocabulary. That word is something that we probably say several times throughout the course of our day without really realizing that we're saying it. We use it to express a genuine desire with a range of likelihoods. Something like, I hope this Kirk Cousins signings really works out for the Vikings and they win a Super Bowl. Or I hope that the, I got a lot of nods there, lots of amens. Or I really hope that our ice cream doesn't melt on the way home. We use it to soften a commitment. Boy, Grandma, I hope that we can really come and visit you on your birthday. Or I hope that I can give you a hand when you move. Sort of like clicking interested or maybe on a Facebook invite. We use it to encourage others. We say something like, I really hope that your job interview goes well. Or we say, I hope your cancer goes into remission. We use it to communicate an expectation. I hope that you've learned your lesson. Parents, we've said that. Hope that you've learned your lesson, or I hope this is the last time that you get out of bed, three-year-old. So that's several times last night. We have a lot of hopes. But one thing that we can be sure about our hope is that it's future tense. It's something that's coming. But is it a reality present? Because as in our text this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome, he says, who hopes for what he sees? So take your Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry's got some. He's walking around with them. He'll bring one to you. We're going to go to the book of Romans together. Maybe a strange place to go Palm Sunday, maybe not. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be. Many people have called this the most important chapter in all of Scripture. It's an incredible turn, an incredible wealth of assurance, an incredible wealth of understanding of what God has accomplished for us and then how we should respond. This morning we're going to look at a few verses, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through the end of, well, through verse 25. Romans 8, 16 through 25. Paul writes this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, today is Palm Sunday. It's a day that gets circled on our calendar, or is an important day on our calendar. It's the day that we read it just a moment ago in John chapter 12, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And he was received by the people as their king. 
But we know that that was only the beginning of the story. This kicks off a week. A week where we understand just a few short days later, people would be screaming in the streets for Jesus' execution. And now, Palm Sunday has been reduced to sometimes a flannel graph story in Sunday school, or it's been reduced to that Sunday before we get dressed up and go to church. But a few minutes ago, like we read in John chapter 12, it gives us an account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. And when we get into the end of verse 19 in John chapter 12, the Pharisees exclaimed to one another, that last verse that we read together, the Pharisees exclaimed to another, look, the whole world has gone after him. The popular opinion on Palm Sunday was overwhelmingly in Jesus' favor. Although again, that would not continue. And the religious leadership would succeed, succeed, quote, succeed in getting rid of Jesus but in reality, the religious leadership did no such thing. Just a couple chapters before that account of the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this in verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus freely gave up his life. It was not taken from him. But the crowd's response to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem did not take into account what was going to happen or what Jesus said in John chapter 10. In fact, they thought he made his way into Jerusalem. The time had come for them to throw off Rome, to throw off their oppressors. But the fiery trial was not yet upon him. And what did people who witnessed Jesus ride into Jerusalem hope for? What did they hope for? What did they expect? What do we hope for? What do we expect? That's what Paul answers for us in Romans 8, 16 through 29. Palm Sunday is about hope. Palm Sunday is about to hope properly or improperly informed. We must therefore ask, what do we hope for? And the answer we find right in our text, in verse 18, we hope for the glory that is to be revealed to us. We hope for the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that seems like a simple statement, right? Who doesn't hope for that? We hope for the glory to be revealed to us, but it doesn't come without the preceding challenge. Look at the beginning of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The difficulty comes with what Paul says right there. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time. From this verse, we immediately have two categories. We immediately have two categories. First, our present reality. And second, our future hope. What's going to come? And what's going on right now? Suffering. Many of you realize this. Many of you are in the throes of suffering this morning. But what is to come? Paul tells us. Glory to be revealed to us. The two verses before verse 18, 16 and 17. These two verses act as a bridge to get us into uh, verse 18. And what we hope for. 
Verses 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children that heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. First, they answer the question, verses 16 and 17 answer the question, How do I know that I'm a child of God? How do I know that I am a child of God? How can I be assured that I'm a Christian? This is not an uncommon question. I'm sure many of you have even wrestled with this question this very week. How do I know that I am a child of God? A large part of our assurance rests on what Paul says here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What he says is the Spirit himself, like the, that's the Holy Spirit, syncs up with our own spirit and confirms that we're God's child. What does that look like? Because that's, that's a lot of words. We think, so what do you mean, Paul? What are you saying? He says, a reduction of inner conflict over our status as a son or daughter of God. That's what it looks like when the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. When we have assurance, when we feel as though we are God's child, that we are safe and secure in our Father's arms. The Spirit Himself bears witness, the very Spirit that we are indwelled with bears witness with our spirit, with the inner workings, our inner workings, that we are God's children. This is a large part of what it means to be assured that we are a child of God. We come to this text and we say, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, and we say to ourselves, I am a child of God. So we've written, we're written down into God's will. And then look at verse 17. And if children, so if we are assured that we are as assured children, look at this. And fellow heirs with Christ, we are fellow heirs with Christ. We are written into his will. We are written into God our Father's will. And we will inherit the same thing that Jesus himself sought to inherit God himself. And that's incredible news, because at the end of verse 17, again, we have a turn here. We have a turn. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. And that glory to be revealed to us in verse 18 has a marker in the here and now. Friends, it has a marker, and it feels bad. But just as Jesus wrote into Jerusalem, He knew that what He stated in John 10 was going to come to pass. He was going to lay down His life. He knew that He was going to have to lay down His life. And the crowd thought they were watching the fulfillment of their hope, but their hopes were misplaced. Their hopes were improperly informed. But they had to happen for Jesus to establish a firm and certain hope is that He had to lay down His life. He had to suffer. Now, what Paul says here, what Paul says at the end of verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be, or that we may be also glorified with him, and then moving into 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This idea, this concept, we must get our minds around. Church, we need to get our minds around this idea. Because we find ourselves throughout the course of our week suffering, and immediately we turn in on ourselves. Immediately we feel frustrated, and we feel like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? So there's a right and wrong way to think about what Paul says here. Paul's talking about it here. Our suffering does not pay for something. 
Friends, if you have ever thought in your life that your suffering was paying for something, repent. Your suffering is not paying for anything. We are not doing penance. We are not earning something through suffering. Many generations of the church believe this. And so they would actually seek out suffering. They would do ridiculous things like shaving their heads and wearing the shirt with all the hair on it and being all scratchy and itchy. They would do ridiculous things like, I'm, I'm not even going to go into it because it involves like sharp objects. But the reality is, these things do not earn anything. And we don't actually seek suffering out. The world and the sin that's contained brings about enough suffering on its own. But our suffering does not pay for something. Friends, if you are in the midst of a trial this morning and you are believing in your heart that the suffering is paying for something, repent. Turn from that. Because that is a completely unbiblical perspective. On the flip side, our suffering does not pay for something. Jesus' suffering paid for everything. This is where you have to get your mind around this idea. Jesus' suffering did pay for something. It was his suffering that led to glory. And our participation in that glory, his suffering makes it possible that we be glorified with him. We, we obtain this. Right? He says, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we also might be glorified with Him. Not as a way to pay for something, but as a participation. His suffering makes it possible that we be glorified with Him. His suffering guarantees that there is in fact a glory to be revealed to us. We don't earn salvation. Jesus did earn our salvation, and it's given to us freely. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Friends, if you are adding anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ... If you are adding anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must repent in turn because Jesus is of no advantage to you. No advantage whatsoever. Turn and repent. This morning, if your heart is longing and moving after something other than Christ Jesus, if your heart is pursuing something, thinking that it will achieve for you some kind of merit so that when you stand before God, you can present that to Him, abandon it this morning. So why does Paul say that suffering is necessary? Why does he say that we must do it? And Paul answers that question with a question right at the end of our text. Well, verse 24, the second half. He says, for who hopes for what he sees? Who hopes for what he sees? Because God is producing it as something that he intends for us to reflect in him. Part of his nature. Part of who he is. God is producing in us two important attributes that He grants us the ability to participate in. Patience and endurance. Patience and endurance. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, just a few chapters after the one reading this morning, he says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. But rather than be patient in our tribulation, we like the people on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, we like those people demand triumph now. We demand triumph now. It is even popular within Christian circles to use words like conquer. We are, Paul would say earlier, we are more than conquerors, and yet... We are not the ones who conquer. It is Christ who conquers. 
But we demand triumph now. Rather than being patient in our tribulation, we demand triumph. Like the crowds who believed that Jesus was there to achieve some military or some political victory. They demanded triumph now. In the same way that we demand triumph now, triumph means an end to our suffering. We pursue comfort so quickly in our lives. Triumph means that we don't have to endure the garbage of this life, the stuff that happens, the relational mess. Triumph means that our enemies have been conquered. But God has seen fit. God has seen fit that we should suffer as Christ suffered, not as a way to earn our salvation or any merit. God has seen fit that we should suffer as Christ suffered as a way to display that we are heirs with Christ, that we are God's children. Friends, when we suffer and we suffer well, when we are quick to forgive, when we are quick to demonstrate mercy, when it feels like there is no advantage to us to do that, friends, we are suffering as heirs of God, as the children of God. But we demand triumph. The Son of God, Jesus, patiently endured in the face of suffering. And we, as the sons and daughters of God, patiently endured in the face of suffering. This is no different than any area of life. This is no... You patiently endure schooling to become qualified for a particular profession. You patiently endure years at an entry-level position in a company in order to advance. We patiently endure all of the time in our lives. We have an end goal in mind, and yet sometimes that end goal is not ultimate. For our endurance is meant to produce in us something. And as we are reflecting God in His patience and His endurance, character is produced in us and then hope. Character is produced in us and then hope. Romans 5, 1-5 says this. A few chapters before, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we see why Paul writes what he does in 8.25 when he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the question that this verse answers is, how do we wait? We wait patiently enduring with the full knowledge that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Patiently waiting with the full knowledge that the sufferings of this present time will not be worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So the crowd that observed Jesus ride into Jerusalem, the crowd that watched him ride into Jerusalem didn't realize one component that not had not yet happened. And if their hope was in something political or militaristic, that makes sense. They had no idea that Jesus came to eradicate sin and death, not just to make the, their next 30 years comfortable. He came to eradicate sin and death and not just make a political or militaristic statement. And since it was far more than a political or militaristic statement, Jesus had to endure suffering on all our behalves. He was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. 
He would take the sins of the world on himself. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, the only way that you can be forgiven by God is by trusting in the shed blood of Jesus. Without it, there is no forgiveness for you. There is no earning the forgiveness of God. There is no earning the grace of God. Grace is a free gift given to you in Christ Jesus. It is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can establish by yourself. One of the clearest pictures of the suffering of Christ was written several hundred years before Jesus even walked the earth in Isaiah 53. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus paid for our sins so that we don't have to. This was written centuries before Jesus walked the earth. Jesus paid for our sins so that we don't have to. We couldn't do it anyways. We couldn't do it anyways. Jesus establishes our hope. We don't hope for what we see. We don't hope for what we see. We hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. That is how we wait. So God's people are a people of hope. Friends, this morning, if you're here and you're in Christ, you are a person. You are a people. We are a people of hope. The hope that we see in Romans 8 is future tense. It's future tense. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Are you suffering? No doubt you are. Paul says, trust me, the payoff is much greater. Look at at the words. Look at the words! The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing? It's not even worth comparing! We do a lot of comparing. It's not even worth it. Don't even give your mind to it. It's not worth comparing. Do we we live like the payoff is greater? Do we hope for the glory that is to be revealed in us? Look at verses 19 through 23. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit growing inwardly as we, eager, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons as the, redemp- or the redemption of our bodies. Creation itself hopes and waits with eager longing. For what? What does it wait for? It waits for us to be revealed as the children of God. Paul knows that suffering is hard. Paul wasn't a stranger to suffering. Beaten with rods, shipwrecked, anxiety. Paul knew that disease wrecked bodies. 
Paul knew that anxiety withered the soul. Paul knew that he did the doubt poisoned the mind. And yet Paul's remedy here is not to get down in the dirty stuff of that, but to get bigger. He zooms out to all of creation. And he says, creation that is waiting with eager longing for us to be revealed as God's children. Don't miss the significance here. We read through this, oh, that's nice, creation, that's wonderful, oh, that's good. But don't miss the significance here. What, what we are not, but what God is making us to be, that's what creation is waiting for. Creation is waiting for that thing. Creation is waiting for what we are not currently, but what we will be made into. We were created for relationship with God. Jesus brought us back to that, and we are patiently waiting for its completion. The whole of creation is waiting with eager longing for us to be revealed as God's children. It's saying, we were subjected to this futility. Futility means uselessness. Creation feels and believes it's useless. Sort of like all of the, the silverware in Beauty and the Beast. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving, right? Creation is, feels that. Creation is like the singing and dancing silverware in Beauty and the Beast. And it's longing, like we want to get back to what we were, we were intended to do. All of creation, trees, rocks, ground, sky, clouds, all of it wants to get back to what it was created for. But it has to wait for us to be revealed as the children of God. That's what the text says. Creation, so is that creation's choice to be subjected to this uselessness. But rather, God subjected it to futility or that uselessness so that through Christ, creation would break free from the corruption and be free. Right in verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is incredible. <laughs> Friends, this is incredible. When I think about creation, when I think about when I think about what's going on in creation currently, there are all of these things that happen, these natural disasters and things, and we think, well, where is God in all of that? We are waiting for, or creation is waiting for us to be revealed as the children of God. Until then, it's an unrest. It's incredible. Creation is preparing to enjoy our glorification. We are a people of hope. But this hope isn't what isn't that when Jesus comes back, this mess would be figured out. That's not what our hope is. We read Revelation 21, 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he, he and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we read that and we think, great, no mourning, no crying. <laughs> we think, no more pain. All of that as a result of this messed up world will be gone. But Paul says, no, it's actually the other way around. 
Creation is longing for the glory to be revealed in us. The whole universe is waiting for our glorification. It's waiting for us to be restored to what we were intended to be. What does this mean? Creation's fate is tied up in us, with us. Creation wants us in Christ to get back to what was intended for us. After I think about like new creation, and what will I do there? I'll enjoy creation, right? Wrong. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sit out on my porch on a spring morning, a rainy spring morning, but a warm one, not a cold one. And I'm not going to sit out there and read a book and enjoy creation. When I'm doing that, it's quite the opposite. It's creation that will be enjoying me as I enjoy God. Creation hopes for us to be presented as God's children. And so we are a people of hope. We endure patiently for the glory that is to be revealed in us. We wait eagerly for what Paul says in verse 23, for our adoption, for our redemption, for the redemption of our bodies. We were made aware of a situation this week. Um, two people that Rebecca and I knew from a previous place. Um, they were working on an, on an, on an adop- adoption. On an adoption. They traveled across the country, and three weeks they waited for their son or daughter to be born. They had a relationship with the birth mother. After many conversations with the birth mother, they were very excited. Just a couple of days ago, they went to the hospital, and the birth mother and the baby were both gone. They both had decided to, the birth mother had decided to take the baby home. The couple traveled home without a child. That's a heartbreaking reality of our world. We are hoping for the finalization of our adoption. We are waiting for the finalization of our adoption. But there's nothing that can snatch us out of our Father's hand. We wait eagerly for what Paul says in verse 23. For this adoption, for this redemption of our bodies. Not so that we can enjoy creation, but so that creation can enjoy us while we enjoy God. So Palm Sunday is about hope, right? We ask, what's our present reality? It's suffering. We suffer. But not as a way to earn salvation or to do penance but as a way that God produces in us endurance and patience. Friend, God never wastes your suffering. God has never and will never in this life waste your suffering. He is producing in you something. And what do we hope for? We hope for the glory that is revealed to us, our glorification. That means that we will be restored to what God intended us to be, image bearers who bring Him glory with all of our lives. We will be restored to perfect relationship with God, not slowed down by sin or suffering. We will be revealed as God's children, and that triumph will come. But as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are most to be pitied. But we have hope, not only in this life, but in eternal hope. There's one final thing to think about. We talk about, at the beginning of the sermon, we talk about hope. There's a level of uncertainty with all those statements you make, right? Especially the Vikings one. There's a level of uncertainty. But in Christ, our hope is certain. It's sure. It's fixed. 
It can't be changed. Why? Because it rests on God himself. Not in our circumstances coming together in a particular way. But our hope rests on a God who is sovereign over all of those circumstances. Sometimes we express a hope, it's more like a wish or a desire. But in Christ our hope is fixed, it's sure, it doesn't change. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And just a couple chapters earlier, the author of Hebrews writes, uh, in 6, 7 through 17 through 20, he says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might, come, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the whole soul, a hope that it enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So God promised us glorification in Christ, and God cannot lie. Your hope is, is fixed. It's sure what you hope for, the glorification. The glory that is to be revealed to you is not changing because it's fixed on God. He's the one who promised that to you. He doesn't change. He cannot lie. Do, 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 do you take great comfort in that? He can't lie. He's promised it to you. He cannot lie. His spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you're God's child. He cannot lie. Our hope is Christ. Our hope is not a flimsy wish or desire. Our hope is grounded in God himself and is God himself. If your hope is this, for I, can, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, you don't need to be afraid that that won't happen. Because it's all intimately tied up in who God is. Your hope is Christ. So Palm Sunday, the question to walk away from and ask yourself is, what do I hope for? Maybe you've never thought about hoping in something beyond today or tomorrow. Maybe you've spent hope or put your hope in something political or personal gain. Maybe you've hoped for something here on this earth, but it's never gone past that. So let me say this. I desperately, friends, I desperately want you to read verse 18 and walk away here with hope. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Walk away with this truth in view. Your suffering is not God punishing you. Your suffering is not you paying for something. Your suffering is producing in you character, endurance, and hope. And hope does not put you to shame. But if you are outside of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12 that you are separated from Him. If you are outside of Christ, you are separated from Him. And you had no hope and were without God in the world. So if you're here this morning and that's you, if you're here this morning and that's you, if you don't know what it means to be joined together with Christ, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, if you have no idea, the call is to trust Him. He is your hope. Nothing political, no personal gain. Nothing that can happen today or tomorrow can take that hope away. 
or establish it further. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died in your place for your sins. And as we'll celebrate next Sunday, he was raised on the third day. Trust him to deal with your sin and turn from it. Trust him for the righteousness that you need. And you will have hope. Hope of an eternity spent with God in perfect relationship with him and joy. You don't need to work for it. You can't earn it. Jesus worked on your behalf. And Jesus earned it for you.